0: you're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hello, hello. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Accounted For. This is the podcast on a mission to expand your perspectives, have you question the default option, and really get you inspired to action for your career. So, welcome back if you are a returning listener. And if you're brand new, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy that you decided to give me some of your attention and you got curious to learn more. So, before we hit the episode, like always, this podcast is brought to you by OMD Ventures, my platform focused on everything human capital. You can find all my weekly content, for example, the podcast, the vlog, the newsletter, as well as the article. All these are week- weekly all on my website, omdventures.com, vice versa, oldmandan.com. That's where the OMD comes from. And if you're not subscribed to the newsletter, you're missing out, so definitely subscribe to that on the site as well. I have the links in the description below. And if you are the returning listener, please support the podcast by leaving, get a five stars rating on iTunes, as well as a positive review. If you do so, I will give you a shout out and my next intro and so today's guest is norm Capel, and he is the co-founder of savvy savvy is a fintech company based in toronto that is building a digital lending platform and so so how does one go from studying english literature to harvard law school to capital markets law investment banking and then to building a fintech company well that's norm's journey and if it includes something like losing out on a law job in san fran because of the bursting of the dot-com bubble and then losing out on a job in investment banking because of the of 9-11 and then finally getting the chance to go into investment banking again only to be at the top of the real estate bubble and then you decide to take an 80 percent pay cut to join a fintech startup in toronto then this is the story you want to hear. And Norm has had a very fascinating career journey just by giving just even that high level overview of what he's gone through. And so we go deeper into that journey itself, but also into the world of debt finance and corporate law, where I personally selfishly decide to educate myself and my limited knowledge on that realm. And Norm's journey is one that's just filled with various aspects of economic events as well as a journey that spans multiple countries and multiple career fields and it's been a very dynamic one that i found super interesting and i really do hope that you enjoy it as well so i really do hope my chat with norm will expand your perspectives and really have you question the default option and really hopefully that inspires action as well so please enjoy my interview with norm Capel. Hey everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. Today on the podcast we have Norm Capel. Hey Norm, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Norm here is the co-founder of Savvy and Norm, so for our listeners who may not be familiar with your company, um, what, what does Savvy do? Where is it based out of? How would you explain it to you know your grandmother or a friend who doesn't really know about the fintech space?
1: Sure thing. So Savvy is a Toronto-based technology company, and, and we really focus on the technology. I think some would call us a fintech, uh, but we try to distinguish in that we're not a direct-to-consumer company. So we're a digital mortgage platform, and what we do is we power lenders uh, in, in their mortgage origination, underwriting, and servicing. So in their parlance, we'd be helping them digitize their mortgage process or, or be part of their digital transformation. In ours, we like to think that we're turning incumbent lenders into fintechs.
0: Gotcha. And so when you say, like, incumbent lenders, it includes, I guess, banks, credit unions, all kinds of large financial institutions,
1: mainly? That's right. Banks, large and small, credit unions, mortgage finance companies, and the like. So really institutional lenders.
0: Got it. And was is there no one that does this right now? Is that why you kind of came aboard into this field? I, I imagine, like, the big banks would have, like, kind of had a solution themselves, but I guess they don't, eh? Well,
1: I mean, you'd be amazed. Uh right now the mortgage process in substance looks as it's looked for the better part of a century. Uh, to, you know, To the extent that pieces have been digitized, they're really digitizing what used to be manual processes. But in fact, a lot of it has not been digitized at all. Uh, and so banks really have two problems. The first is that they're working with very old systems uh, that aren't necessarily up to delivering the kind of experience not only that a, a consumer wants today, that a borrower wants, uh, but even that their own employees want. Uh, and the second is that it's not just that they're on one old system, they're on a patchwork of old systems. And this this just creates a host of problems around having your data in one place, being able to make changes, being able to update. Uh, and so a lot of our pitch is really partly about modernizing, delivering a solution that is API friendly, that operates in real time, that has the kind of user interface that you'd expect in the modern age, but also about having a single system, so your data is one place and you can really access it. Uh, you know, in inefficient ways that allow for, in the very near term, modern data analytics. And I suppose if you're looking farther down the road, uh, a, a data architecture that's going to lend itself to AI.
0: Got it. Okay. So you guys are like, I guess, the, the platform, you pre- practically created this platform that allows them to collect all this data and have everything like working on it.
1: That's right. And, and it's it's nice of you to say it. We, so we think of ourselves as infrastructure. I mean, we are very much building the core workflows the, you know that a bank or another lender will use for their underwriting. Um, but there are a lot of great tools out there. There are a lot of interesting data sources, and we're not going to rebuild every point solution or every app or try to replace every data source. What we are going to do is integrate them all into one place and into a single data
0: layer. Gotcha. And the company is called Savvy with two Vs. Why Why Savvy? And does a two V have a specific meaning behind it? Uh, two Vs and two
1: Ys. Two Vs, two uh, Ys, yes. In fact, I'm going to tease you because I think Savvy has two
0: Vs. Oh, does it? Yeah. Oh, wow. But, but, but our
1: savvy has two whys. Um, I like to joke that simply because it's 2019 and you're not allowed to spell anything properly. Uh, one of our friends who's a brilliant brand engineer, in fact, his firm is called Brand Engineering, tells us it's because we always ask why twice. Why hasn't it be done, been done and why can't we do it? But I'm I'm just going to be honest to, to you and yeah, that wasn't in our minds when we came up with it. Um, Setting aside the spelling, the word actually I think really speaks to us. We have a team that's been building lending systems uh, for the better part of a decade. Uh, we really think we bring a real savvy to the process, um, and of course, pun intended. Um, but listen, we we've done a lot with a talented team. I mean, we're a team of eight, seven are engineers, or or in some way touch the products. You're talking to the eighth, uh, and we've probably done more with seven who really bring a domain expertise to you know to bank grade lending uh, than
0: we could with 20 really talented people who don't. Mm-hmm. And you described uh, Savvy as a technology company. And when we first met, you talked about how you would, you know, you self-proclaimed yourself as a computer science whiz kid when you were young. Uh, and I, I don't know if I said whiz kid. Okay, maybe, maybe that was my notes. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you said you were very good at computer science when you were young. And so what, was technology something that interested you, like, at, at a very young age while you were growing up? You
1: know what? That's a great question, and I haven't thought of it that way. I am um, all right. I, uh, I will just own it. I had a certain knack for high school computer programming, so far as that went. I mean, this is you know back in the in the early 1990s, So we're talking about you know displaying little graphics on Turbo Pascal or Turing.
0: Um, that's still impressive. I I've never had any kind of com- computer program. wasn't even an option for me in high school. And I st- I went to you know high school in like the two thousands, and it wasn't even an option. So that's pretty cool.
1: Uh, you know what? It was pretty cool. Um, and yeah, I liked I liked technology, but technology I don't think m- had the same kind of broader arc of meaning then that it does today. Uh, but I certainly liked computers. I what I really liked though was the logic. It was the same part of me that liked math. Uh, you know, also like computers. For me, it, w- it was really just this act of. of th- I naturally thought that way, and it was a it was almost a language that would let me push out into the world something that reflected
0: that kind of thinking. Mm. And so then, uh, growing up, did you did you grow up in Toronto? Grew up here. Yep, born and raised. And so when you when you were growing up at like a young age, did you you know were you like the typical stereotypical Canadian of I want to be a professional ice hockey player, or did you find <laughs> did you find that you gravitated towards this kind of more mathematical mindset like earlier on or something similar?
1: Yeah, I don't even know if I buy the, di- the dichotomy, but I was like I, w- I was a pretty regular kid. I mean, I. It, I guess the rest of the world can't see me, but you're looking at me. I'm not built like a hockey player. Uh, I, you know, I was a little bit bookish. I was a little bit shy, but I, you know, um, you know, reasonably well rounded. I think I was kind of uh,
0: the math kid who could throw a football and and the
1: guy who could catch a football and still, you know, pass a math test.
0: Gotcha. And so, you know, you you yeah, as you explained, you liked mathematics. You did computer science in high school. But then, for university, you went to Berkeley, and you were an English major in Berkeley. Um, and this was also during the time of the dot com boom, like in the nineteen nineties. What was your mindset there? Like, why, why didn't you? You know, you you were going into California. You're going into practically close to, close enough to Silicon Valley to be part of this whole boom. Especially when you were so you know interested in mathematics. Why English?
1: You know, it's a, it's interesting. I was. I think I was actually fundamentally very sheltered. I didn't have a practical bone in my body. Um, I was good at math. I was also good at English. I wasn't particularly good at history or geography. Um, but I liked English. I, it, it really just compelled me on an emotional level. And of course, we're talking English literature here. Uh, it spoke to me. And when I turned up at college, having come from a, a pretty academic household, I just wasn't any, under any pressure to think about uh, you know, the consequences of, uh, of those choices. I was really just sent off to school to do well and you know in some ways free to study whatever I wanted. Um, you can think of that as freedom you can think of it as unguided they kind of mean the same thing.
0: And when you said an academic household so were your parents professors or in some kind of academia uh, occupation?
1: Uh, both lawyers but my father in particular a, a lawyer's lawyer as they say so what you one to really embraced the academia
0: of it. Gotcha and so that kind of I wonder if that explains it but so after Berkeley you went into Harvard Law School and when we talked you said it was kind of by luck that you went to harvard law school and so what was the what was that process like when you were thinking okay i'm going to do english literature and then i'm going to go to law school like was that something that was predetermined while you were in berkeley or did it just happen gradually like what was that like
1: you know, I think everybody just assumes that if you go do a liberal arts degree, you're doing it in the back of your mind with, with this thought of my safety net is go to law school. I swear to you, I wasn't that practical. I, I, I suspect that others around me who might otherwise have been horrified by the choice of English <laughs> literature, you know, comfort, in, comfort in themselves that way. Um, but my, my mind wasn't even there. And, and it, it's funny you say it was an accident, and and it wasn't. And, and I, I think it probably sounds fairly obnoxious, but it was. Um, going to California was a bit of an accident too. It happened at the last minute. It was well into the spring of my senior year of high school. Out of nowhere, I was essentially presented with the question, do you want to go spend four years in California? And I just didn't even, like, I just said yes. I didn't know, I didn't know the difference between San Francisco and LA. I turned up in Berkeley in the Bay Area. Um, I kind of wonder where the beach was.
0: (laughs) And so when you said it kind of came upon it, like, you didn't prep ahead of time to, I don't know, like wasn't there like a full process I just had to go through to decide to go to Berkeley or like how did um, this happen?
1: Uh, yeah, so, so I mean, of course there is, and that would normally happen in the fall. And so I'd, I'd applied to some of the, I mean, I'd, I'd applied across Ontario, as, as, as you do, or as as I did at least, and, and to a couple of the East Coast private schools in the U.S. And, you know, was, it what was then considered a, In what was considered, in, in in some ways, a common problem for you know an upper middle class Canadian family, which was, you know, too well off to qualify for for financial aid, um, but not quite well enough off to pay for an American private school in Canadian dollars, uh, and so I'd had kind of, you know, been tempted by by the U.S., but had made a decision to stay here in Ontario to go to U of T, and the crew coaches at Berkeley got hold of me, and I just told you. Um, that I don't look like a hockey player. I don't particularly look like a rower either. Um, but I am small enough to sit in the back. You know, steer, shout and strategize, and uh, and they needed someone who fit that mold, and it just came together at the last minute.
0: Gotcha. So uh, I forget what, the, what it's called. Is it a coxman? Coxman. Yeah. Coxman. Yeah. Okay. I I went to rowing high school as well, so there there was a very big rowing tradition, and and so then okay, so you you go to Berkeley, you did English literature, and you you were one of those kids who didn't have law school in the back of your mind as that safety net, but how did that accident happen then?
1: So I was always good at standardized tests. Uh, uh, I think I'm, I'm one of those people who reads the test as opposed to reading the question. Like I just always felt like I knew, I knew what was being asked of me as opposed to trying to take the question at face value and just answer it. Like I could see the game. Uh, and so I, I was living with a bunch of guys who themselves uh, we're prepping for the LSAT and t- and, and writing practice tests and um, for what I guess amounted to me as sport I I, I took a practice test which went well and uh, annoyed some of my friends uh, and they insisted that that didn't count because it's a time test and I didn't do it timed so I did it timed and that went well because I mean really standardized testing a totally useless skill but I happen to be good at it um, and then I found myself uh, graduating with. Just not a whole ton of real-world options. Um, and I went traveling for, for a year in the Middle East. Uh, I took the LSAT that summer, swearing up and down that it was a backup. And uh, while I was traveling, I put in some law school applications, swearing up and down it was a backup. And then reality caught up with me. I was coming back from a year of traveling with a backpack. I had a degree in English literature. I had no visa to work in the U.S. I had no professional connections in Toronto. And I had a seat at Harvard Law School, so put that as number two of the easiest questions I've ever been asked.
0: <laughs> wow. Did when you when you said you were constantly thinking of law school as a backup, like you're writing the LSAT, as as a backup, applying to law school as a backup. What was it, as a backup too? Was there something else while you were traveling throughout the Middle East? That- constantly nagged just, this is something else that I want to do and law school is always going to be a backup to that.
1: Yeah there, was, there were some ideas I don't think they were terribly well formed but in, in the course of doing an English degree I'd spend a, some time around journalism I'd actually taken a semester off college to to intern at Rolling Stone which was the first time I uh, first time I lived and worked in New York uh, and actually while I was there I wasn't even on the editorial side I was more in promotions and events so I got to go to new music nights I got to arrange but not attend a party for Hunter Thompson and um, and, and, and so the, the, there was a bit of that kind of journalism angle, and, and I'd written for the school paper a bit, too. Not terribly well, I think. Um, so, so something around promotions or something around journalism or something, uh, you know, in, in the act of publishing, but it wasn't a terribly well-formed thought. And okay. candidly, I didn't, have, I didn't have any kind of network into those worlds that would have let me explore it.
0: Gotcha. So you it wasn't like an option where you internet rolling so long, you, you could come back full-time, something like that? No, no. Gotcha. Okay. And so you get into Harvard Law School and I actually actually found an interview that I think you might have given at the Harvard Law today in like 2001. Oh dear. And it, it's a very, it, it was a very short one where you, I think they like asked you about what do you think about Silicon Valley and San Francisco? And you you quoted that San Francisco is a very exciting place to be. And so this is after I think the dot-com probably had popped at, at that point or was it still still in like the peaking eras where you know as a budding lawyer you were thinking i'm going to go back to the california valley area so would that have been the fall of 2001 so this interview came out spring of 2001
1: you know what i don't remember i remember being asked some questions largely at the time of recruiting recruiting was always a fall event i don't recall specifically um but it was an exciting time and it, and it really was the first boom. So everything about it was new. Hmm. Um, you know, n- no one yet had thoughts of the cyclical nature of Silicon Valley or a little bit of boom and bust. There was, there, there was only boom until there was the bust. Uh, you know, it's funny to hear your own words back to you because I was just there a couple of months ago in San Francisco. I was in in an Uber. And so, of course, you can't even tell the story without standing you know, like you're very much of the moment. I was in an Uber. I don't know if we'll, if we'll even say this kind of thing 10 years from now. On my way, leave, leaving San Francisco, headed down um, uh, to Menlo Park, but still, still in the city. And as we're driving through, uh, I get past, you know, a guy weaving between cars on an electric
0: unicycle. Oh. And I just think to myself, like, this place is the future. Well, I, I think I, I, would, I would make the argument that when you actually walk through San Francisco, it makes you wonder, how can this place be the future? That was that was my first impression when I went to San Francisco a few years ago. I had that Im- that imagination of, it's got to be the future. And I chose the option of not taking an Uber a single time and just walking all throughout downtown San Francisco. Mistakenly walked through Tenderloin. And yeah, it gave me a bit of a perspective <laughs> on the city for sure.
1: You know, it's a great way to do it. I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic walking city. The architecture is... Is striking. I would say you know San Francisco and New Orleans are pr- probably the two most unique looking places mm. in, in in the U.S. City's going through a lot of growing pains. It's obviously got a very different spirit than it did twenty years ago. I um, think the Washington Post just last week ran an article about how. Uh, the tagline was something like "You used to leave your heart in San Francisco, and now
0: it, and now it breaks it." <laughs> that might be pretty accurate. Yeah, there was this other article about how I think Paris has been like breaking hearts for. Asian tourists who go there and they have this romance, romanticization about Paris, and they could they go and it all gets broken. It was, some, it was it was like the Paris syndrome, and like this Japanese paper they coined it as all these Japanese people getting heartbroken.
1: That's interesting. I've got I've got cousins in Paris, including one right around my age, or I mean two more or less uh, my age, and they'll you know they'll tell you it's a fascinating city, but it's not the city people people expect when they come to visit for the first time.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and so then. You you Harvard Law School and instead of going to San Francisco, you went straight to New York, right? If I'm correct,
1: I actually went to London. Um, you went there, to London, okay. There, there was a bit of turmoil uh, before that decision. So typically, for your second summer uh, in law school, you go take a firm uh, at a you know, Sorry, you go take a job at a law firm, and that typically is the law firm that you'll go then go join when you graduate. Uh, I thought I was really clever. And so I was one of four people in my class who got a job at Merrill Lynch Investment Banking uh, rather than at a, at a law firm.
0: While, um, you, while you were
1: in law school? While so. I was in law school. Uh, and, and, you know, th- those, were hard, those were hard spots to get. And I was really proud of myself. And, and uh, you know, everyone who got those jobs, whether at Merrill or somewhere else, you know, was, uh, I- I'm sure, pleased with themselves as well. And then so we were interviewing for those jobs in the fall of 2000, which was boom time. Uh, and by the time we got there in the summer of 2001, it was bus time. Uh, and to make matters worse, coming back from the end of that summer, we came onto campus and within the first week it was 9-11. Uh, so very quickly faced, I mean, uh, very quickly faced with the changing world. Uh, but, in, you know, in particular, just the reality that, the, that those jobs that we thought were going to be there for us were not going to be. Um, You know, the New York law firms mostly stood by the word and and I think many of the law firms in the U.S. outside of California. um, You know, the investment banks are are built a different way. If they don't need you, they don't need you. So I found myself in a position no no 3L or no no third year law student wants to be in, which was back on back on campus in the fall of 3L year interviewing for a job. Uh, My back, you know, not every first year law student Uh, has a summer job at a law firm, but if you're at the Ivy League, uh, you know, very often you you get lucky. And so I'd actually spent my first summer uh, at a firm called Gray Carey in Silicon Valley. And naturally that might've been my backup plan, Um, but of course tech had just blown up. So uh, it was a little bit back to the drawing board. Uh, And and in some senses uh, I got lucky, I was handed an opportunity. Uh, I was somewhat fascinated with London. I, I'd, I'd done some interviews for positions in London, for, uh, you know, during the 2 l interview process. Uh, my roommate from law school was moving out there, and I had a couple of other good friends out there as well. And Alan and & Overy's U.S. law group in London uh, made me an offer, uh, which which I very happily took to go practice U.S. securities law in London, essentially, you know, doing financings in the U.S. capital markets for European companies.
0: Gotcha. And so, and Allen Overy was a, is a very prestigious. Uh, law firm in London and I think like they're part of like, this thing called like the magic circle it's, I guess it's kind of like the well what's that? the bulge bracket investment bank name something like that yeah I, I guess in
1: Toronto they they refer to what is it the seven sisters yeah the seven like sisters same, yeah. you know, same notion that's right there, there are five kind of prominent firms in London and they're one of them
0: gotcha and so were you in London for the full five years when you were where you were with um, Alan Alan Overy
1: so I I was with Alan Overy just two years um, and I was in London just two years oh okay Uh, you know it it was a somewhat untraditional move um, a move I was happy to make both because I think I had a little bit of a uh, you know a penchant for adventure and travel but also because I mean just candidly it it was a great finance uh, you know uh, legal finance job at a time when when not many were available Uh, we got there and Um, there just wasn't quite enough work for that group. It's not that there was none, um, but the group was a little bit overstaffed for the amount of work it had. And and actually the American firm's London offices were getting more of that American capital markets work in London uh, than the English were at the time. I have, by the way, no idea whether that's still the case. Uh, And I was treated very well. Uh, I got great mentorship. I got placed on great deals uh, I was kept busy but the dynamic wasn't quite right because anytime if I was busy it meant somebody else wasn't and that's just not a great dynamic for uh, you know for a young lawyer uh, and one or two of my mentors uh, left that group after about two years and I could kind of see that it wasn't quite the right position for me and I, I looked at some opportunities in London I looked at some in New York in New York and it struck me that the thing to do is really just go back to Wall Street, go back, do something re- really middle of the fairway uh, and just get trained, uh, you know, the good old-fashioned way.
0: Gotcha. And so that's when you came back to New York and you were in Cahill Gordon, um, I guess, and they specialize in like capital markets law. So I guess it was, was, that like the thing you were looking for where you're like, that's, that Wall Street, that avenue is where I want to be?
1: You know, it's it, it's interesting. When, when I interviewed with a bunch of firms in New York as as a second-year law student, I really couldn't tell them apart. I mean, I understand now in retrospect that they were, in fact, very different from one another. But I just, I didn't have the persp- perspective to really, to really let that difference resonate with me. And, and going back with even two years' experience, I could see how different they all were. Not just in terms of the strengths of their practice, but, but in terms of the personalities. And one of the things I loved about Cahill, and it's not, if you'd asked me before the process, it, it might not have been top of my list. But the thing I loved about it was it was it was barely administered. It was really a place where you know the transaction the deal was was the focus of the place obviously they had a billing department and a word processing department and 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 the rest but it was fundamentally unstructured if you were a partner and you needed a mid-level associate to work on your deal you called around until you found one who who had capacity to give and as a mid-level associate if you needed a junior same process this is very different than a lot of firms where you have you know, really formalized, highly structured staffing systems to make sure people get dispersed. It was really a, a free market kind of place, um, and I liked that. I liked that. It, w- it was less formal. It was less stuffy. It was much more about just getting it done. I mean, high quality, high quality legal practice, but but none of the pomp and none of the circumstance. Uh, Cahill, Cahill is certainly a capital markets firm, or, or, or I mean, you know, the corporate half of it, but specifically leverage finance. So. Uh, non-investment grade bonds, junk bonds, as they call them, and you know similar credit spectrum for, for syndicated term loans. Uh, which really appealed to me. I'd, re- I'd done a little bit of that work in London, and, and I'd really gravitated to it. And the, and the way I explain it to people is this. If you're doing structured finance, say, securitizing credit card receivables or securitizing mortgages, There's a lot of engineering there. In fact, the kind of engineering, the way all the cash flows have to work and how all the notice periods have to work, in some ways, it could appeal to the kind of person who liked mathematics or computers. Um, But there's no story there. There's just assets, these financial assets. And if you're doing equity, I mean, I think a lot of people who come out of law school and say to themselves that they want to be securities lawyers. I I probably said that kind of thing. I don't know what I was thinking. Um, What they imagine. You know, like, like this kind of default imagination that you have is I'm going to work on IPOs. And I did work on a couple. And what I actually found was they were a little bit boring to me because uh, certainly it's an exciting moment for the company that's going public. Uh, but the lawyer's job in that is really mostly about disclosure. It's about disclosing all the pertinent facts about the company, all the pertinent risks, you know, making sure that whatever contracts have to get filed get filed. But there's actually no real structuring at all. And, and in this you know in, in that world of leverage finance you're financing a real company uh, you're financing a your real company typically through some kind of event um, but because they're not investment grade uh, you get a lot of terms and conditions put on those financings typically debt financings with with covenants and, and the like and so you, you got this act of engineering where you had to construct a covenant package and various pieces had to hang together exactly the right way but you still had a company story there too and for me for me it was the perfect middle of of, of structure and story
0: hmm. okay yeah yeah I think this is this is definitely something I'm just like so not familiar with like this the corporate law world and to give you some backdrop my experience with interacting with lawyers was when I was a consult like a management consultant and our only interaction with them is them calling us and saying okay we got to change this um, NDA we got to change this contract that we're working on with this this new project for this new client and then it would be f- 2 to 3 hours of the lawyer saying when you say delivered what are you implying we can't use this word delivered by x amount of time like, or that we will work hard maybe we should change the word to diligent like we are going through vocabulary on what could, what it could result in like legal implications if something were to go wrong with the project and so it made me think hmm is this what corporate law is and you know it might be very different with i, I think you know what you're describing as so securities lawyers and in, like, the corporate law world and, like, the financial world. But if you could also like kind of shed some light to me on what what is it that you actually did in this kind of, like, corporate law world?
1: Well, I mean, you know, Dan, what if I asked you the same question about being a management consultant? What if I asked you, what did you do? Could you give me one answer?
0: No, yeah, it's tough. No, of course not. And,
1: and so, you know, different parts of the job require different things. I think, you know, putting together a complex contract is kind of an act of engineering uh, disclosure, which often goes hand in hand with securities law, is about precision and anticipating risk, and and of course, you know, a lot of people associate that with that lawyer's almost um, obsession with precision or obsession with language, which is often derided and sometimes rightly so. Um, but you know, the English major in, in in me like that also. The really fun part of the job, uh, and you could probably relate to this having been a consultant, is the quarterbacking. It's quarterbacking a deal. I mean, I like the engineering and substance. I like the language and substance. But what what I what I really enjoyed, um, I was a deal junkie. Right? There's there's something fundamentally satisfying about running a process
0: and getting it across the line. Did, is that something you you experienced early on? Like when, as soon as you joined, um, you know, Alan over when you're in London, like did you just immediately get it? of I love this process, or did it take some time for you to realize that? Oh, it
1: definitely took time to realize. Uh, and you're also not running the process as as a as a junior. Your first couple of years, you're getting teamed up with someone. But as I as I was teamed up with with senior and mid level uh, lawyers and, and got to watch them run it. And 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 you know, of course, everyone's so busy that they want to give away as much responsibility as they can. It's actually not the kind of role where people hoard responsibility. It's just the opposite. With what, what they really do is go looking for anyone junior to them who they trust enough to give responsibility away to because everyone's too busy. Mm. Um, and I think it was through the act of taking it on and enjoying taking it on. You know, you kind of work up the chain of I'm responsible for this tiny piece to I'm responsible for a section of the deal to finally I get to run my own deal.
0: Mm-hmm. And and so then you you know you you found this great firm Kale, and but afterwards you left uh, to go to Merrill Lynch during the <laughs> Ram, 09, period yeah back to Merrill. Did you go back as a lawyer or was this into investment banking now, so
1: that was into investment banking, um, and and I left Cahill for very reasons, very different reasons than I left A and um, I liked Cahill. I I loved Cahill. Uh, I liked the people. Uh, when I say I was treated well, I was treated well in a different way than I was at A and O. At A and O, that you know, I, I was a good young lawyer, and and they gave me a good look. But at Cahill, I, I felt like I was becoming part of the fabric of the place. You know, and, you know, it was a much smaller firm. People knew each other. Uh, you worked with the same people a lot. I mean, I, I really had a, a sense of identity with it. Um, I just wasn't sure I wanted to be a lawyer forever, uh, and and it dawned on me a few ways. The first was, you know, we, we typically had the underwriters, so the the banks as our clients, and and Merrill, uh, you know, the leverage finance group at, at Merrill Lynch at the time. Uh, I did a lot of work for, it. and you get to know them, uh, and and. I suppose the best way I could summarize my frustration was, you know, we were in the market as as Cahill, we were in the market with more deals than any of the individual banks. We were just, we were on literally half the deals. Um, And so as a a mid-level lawyer there, you came to know the product, say a high-yield bond, inside out in terms of its intricacies, its terms and conditions. But what you didn't know was what it took to go and market it, what it took to go and sell it, how you priced it. And so I would get these fantastically complex contracts and disclosure go- documents to hang together perfectly. And I'd run the process and I'd be very happy at the end. And then at the end of my, I would have everything done and I would leave one thing blank, the price. And it just, it seemed preposterous to me. Um, it seemed preposterous for me that I could think that I knew so much about something and not have any reason on the one thing everybody really cared about. Uh, at the same time, though, these were the leverage finance boom years, which is why we were all getting so much responsibility. I mean, there was just more work than anyone at any of the banks or any of the firms could do. Uh, and so Merrill was looking for for more people. And, you know, I was not a finance guy. I hadn't gone to business school, but I hadn't interested in it. Uh, and they, you know, they also took a chance on me. They said, look, we know this guy. We know he's." you know, friendly enough to work with because I spent hours upon hours with them. This is back when you actually used to go to the printer, the financial printer to, to print an offering memorandum, whereas now you just kind of PDF it. Um, they knew I was hardworking. They knew I was organized enough to run a process, uh, you know, and they knew that I could keep up with the math. I mean, you, you know, the, there's enough work you d- you do as a lawyer, certainly if you, if you care to engage it around you know, pro forma financials and dis- the disclosure around financial figures that they can figure out pretty quickly whether or not you're numerical, whether you're just accepting the numbers from them or, or making sure that you understand them in parallel. So I think they saw, they saw enough to say, listen, we need people. Uh, we can teach them the leverage financial. We can teach them the business part. But in the meantime, you know, he'll make up for it. We'll have a lawyer on the floor. But it wasn't a legal role. It was a, I, I went in an, as, a, as an associate in investment banking.
0: Hmm. And this was during the boom time of leverage finance. Uh, Well, I thought you know it it, it looked that way when
1: I took the job. I think it was probably the the second time that I was uh, awfully pleased with myself, but in fact, a leading indicator of disaster. So that was the that was the spring of two thousand seven. So got there, kind of got integrated into the group Uh, by early summer. I was on a roadshow for my first deal, and the leverage finance markets were just falling apart, as were the markets generally. And so I, I had uh, I had left the comfort and security of a law firm for for the adventure and volatility of an investment bank, just as things got really volatile.
0: And so you, you know, you you have these pivotal moments in your career in two kind of major crisis points. It was you know the first time when you were in law school, you had that. You know the internship, and you thought, okay, everything's gonna be set. Tech bubble bursts. 9/11 happens. Investment banks are like shutting down. And then you eventually join that that same investment bank. At the height, then it, craters again. What, if you can take, can you take me through kind of the, the emotional, kind of thought that you had during those two kind of times? Does did it, differ or. Like, because you went through it once, did you handle it differently the second time? Or how? what was it like?
1: It's not one thing, you know, it, it, there are a lot of different emotions. I mean, it, it's not as though the credit crisis hit in one moment in 2007, and right. then you thought you were out of a job. Right. You know, the markets, you know, the markets started to tumble a bit, or or, or the way we, you know, we think of it in credit terms is the markets backed up, right? Rates got higher, they call that backing up. Um, but they didn't just back up linearly you know, o- over the course of two years from 2007 to 2009. There were fits and starts. There were moments where you could get a deal done, moments where you couldn't, moments where, where it seemed like confidence was coming back before it fell apart again. So you know, right at the beginning, I didn't have any existential fear at all. In fact, it was kind of fascinating because you know, when everything's going well, nobody cares what the documents say. When things start to fall apart, everybody cares what the documents say, right? Because now you're really going back to what are your legal rights when, thing, when things go wrong. And so in some ways, the messiness of it played played to some of my skills. Um, and in some ways, I got, I got to flex some of those skills a, a little earlier than, than I might have otherwise or got some responsibilities that I might not have got so early. Although in retrospect, I think in some cases I got them because no one else no one else wanted to go near those files. Um but no, over time, it dawns on you that you're probably going to be in trouble. I mean, you know, as 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 the Merrill stock price starts to collapse and you watch other, other investment banks literally go under, you, you know, you, we saw Lehman go down, yeah, it starts to get a little bit existential. Um, and I think in some ways, I was probably a little more nervous than I was in law school. I think... Uh, you know, with with a bit of arrogance, you just kind of figure, as a Harvard Law School grad, no matter how it is, some law firm will hire you. The, the issue is really just, will it or won't it be the one of your choice? Uh, after so many of us got blown out of Merrill Lynch in the spring of two thousand nine, and, and there were, you know, the street was already littered with bankers, uh, it wasn't a matter of whether or not you were going to get the job you wanted. There just weren't jobs. Now you're a little bit of capitalized. You've saved some money. You know you. You're not worried about paying the rent or eating, but you're you're terribly worried about the arc of your career
0: and so how, how 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 did it turn out for you at that point what was your, what were your thoughts of like you know trying to i guess brace the, brace impact for it? like were you trying with, were you like looking for an exit of your own and is that how Citadel came out to be like the next choice or what was what was the process that you undertook for yourself during this crisis?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I talked a big game. I mean, I, I kind of saw it coming and, and a lot of us saw it coming. And so in, in those uh, early months of 2009, I, I, I declared proudly that if it happened to me and it, it was going to happen to me, I was, you know, last in, first out and and the least trained of the bankers. Um, I declared loudly that I was going to go camp out on a beach for a bunch of months. Uh, and then when it happened, I didn't do it. Uh, because I spent the whole time looking uh, at, you know, now in retrospect, I can I can see that you know there wasn't going to be a job there for the first few months, and so probably going to the beach would have been exactly the right thing to do, but I didn't do it. Right. Uh, I hung around. I actually uh, through a series of connections met a guy named Charlie Brock. Charlie is among my favorite people on the planet, uh, and he uh, well I mean he's many things he. He's a philanthropist of sorts. He he very much gives back to his his community, but he was at the time also the head of the Harvard Law School Association uh, and the head of the Harvard Club of New York. And he ran, uh, let's call it a group of consultants and financiers, many of whom had held very, very senior positions uh, on Wall Street or in corporate America, uh, and were now really offering advisory services. And they they had a bit of a structural uh issue which was that they had a whole bunch of really really accomplished senior people and one or two junior people and nobody in the middle uh and charlie and i met and had a very interesting first chat uh the details of which i won't disclose but it was awfully fun uh got on like a house on fire and he brought me on uh, and employed me for six months and it wasn't supposed to be six months i mean i, I Really, he, he gave me a home. It wasn't it wasn't in, a, in any sense really the right thing for my career, but it was a safe port and I was very happy to do whatever I could for him while I was there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and he remains to this day a, a great friend. Uh, and so I did that and stayed in Manhattan um, while continuing to look for something that would put my career back onto a, you know, something that more resembled the path I thought it, would, it, it should be on. And I came down to really two things. The first was actually an opportunity at Bridgewater up in Connecticut, um, you know, Ray, Ray Dalio's shop, uh, which was fascinating. Um, they have, a, I mean, uh, I think everyone knows now, particularly now, now that Ray, Ray's book has been out for a couple of years, they've got a particularly strong culture and they have people within that organization whose job it is uh, in, in some ways to... Enforce can't be the right word, but but bring that culture to bear. Which seemed fascinating to me. They weren't looking for a particular skill set. They were looking for what they called a best athlete. Just someone who they could put into position and whatever it was, know that they could pick it up and make it happen. And that sounded fascinating to me. And working for a hedge fund sounded fascinating to me. Uh, Being on their bus an hour and a half each way every day did not sound fascinating to me. Um, But where that one fell apart for me was what became clear was that they did want to hire me into that role, but the assignment they wanted to give me once I got the role was to, in some sense, go manage or bring the culture to bear on their own internal legal department. And so as much as it wasn't a legal job, it felt like it was back to law, and that, was, that wasn't that was the direction I wanted to go. I just knew that instinctively. I, I, I was only two years into this journey of of having left law in pursuit of, you know, uh, a broader horizon and that just felt like it was going to be a step backwards. Uh, But Citadel, also a hedge fund, incidentally, um, decided to get into the investment banking game. And their theory at the time, and I'm going to risk boring your listeners, um, was that you could get into investment banking without having a bank's balance sheet um, because the banks weren't lending at the time. and So you had this opportunity to build uh, a leverage finance-focused practice without yourself being a bank. And there was, of course, fantastic talent available. I don't label myself with that. but You know, there's fantastic talent available. And they, they recruited a really remarkable uh, group of people, uh, some of whom had been uh, the leverage finance syndicate people at Merrill Lynch. so they knew me. And they originally thought that they were going to do their leverage finance syndication with, with only the syndicate group, not with a separate group of kind of frontline bankers, uh, which is a distinction that probably isn't worth diving into right now. Uh, and then what they realized was that if they were going to do that, they still needed maybe just one guy, someone who could really read a document. Uh, and so of of all the bankers they didn't want, my skill set was at least the closest thing to something they wanted. Uh, and and, and I, 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 I say that with a smile. They, you know, they were friends uh, and, and we got along well. But it, it it's just so funny because I, I was... The most obvious person to be first in line to lose my job when Merrill cut all those all those people because I didn't I wasn't strongest in the obvious way. My my strengths were different. And these guys were actually
0: looking for someone whose strengths were different. And was that did it kind of trigger something for you where you realized that, oh, this is a different way I can start approaching my career?
1: Uh, in the course of looking for work during that six month period from kind of the spring to the fall in two thousand nine, um, I was certainly getting the most resonance holding myself out as someone who had a combined skill set because, you know, uh, there wasn't a lot of, uh, of new issue work in the debt world, right? I mean, you, you, there just wasn't a lot of work to do issuing new high yield bonds, but there was a lot of work to do restructuring them. And so I began to realize that I could pitch myself as the person who understood the ins and outs of the terms and conditions and the legal rights well enough that I could actually reposition myself from one to the other. Uh, and and most of the other bankers,
0: you know, the, that wasn't in the real house. Mm. And do do you find that when looking back in hindsight, do you sometimes wonder whether you should have taken that those few months on the beach and taken some time to like readjust things, or do you do you feel like you had to just constantly push it, constantly to you know, find that thing, the next step for the career, to help you continue on that trajectory? You know, I think
1: it probably would have been an awfully healthy thing to do at the same time. I don't know if I picked up and left New York, whether I would have come back. You, you know, it, it's hard to say what happens when you take yourself out of the mix hmm. and, and, you know, uh, Charlie Brock and, 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 his, uh, his firm Brock capital, they were a really enriching, enriching part of my life. They, uh, they remain part of my life to this day. So I don't certainly don't regret
0: it for a second. Mm-hmm. And you, you kind of touched upon you know whether when you leave New York whether you would come back or not. So eventually you you did leave New York and as we speak about it in Toronto, um, you you left Citadel's investment banking team to eventually join RBC Capital Management in Toronto. And was what was that like? What was the thought process there? Like, why did you eventually want to leave this financial capital of the world and come to Toronto, which is definitely much smaller? And was it like a family thing? What was going through your mind then?
1: You know, it was a bunch of things. Um, and, I, you know, I didn't go into that process saying, I'm leaving New York, and i move to Toronto. Uh, but I did look at opportunities in both places. And, and to be clear, I, I, I was still at Citadel for a bunch of reasons, largely to do with uh, quantitative easing and the amount of money that the, that the Federal Reserve was pumping back into the system. Really, the fundamental thesis that that Citadel Investment Banking Group had been built on, which was that you didn't need a balance sheet to be in investment banking in that moment, actually just it it started to fade away um, and, and everyone kind of saw it coming uh, and so rather than than wait for the bad news that time I got out ahead of it uh, as did several others um, what made me ready to leave New York was just having lived through the crisis on a visa and knowing that my existence was tied to being employed uh, you know the the there was no part of me that was even legally entitled to be an entrepreneur, for example, in New York. Not, not that I had in my mind at the time that I was gonna be an entrepreneur, but just uh, it was clear to me how tenuous that was in a way that it would never be clear to you during normal times. Uh, and that bothered me, and that bothered me. And I, I, I guess there were two other things going on. The first was, I thought I'd had my fill. Uh, and as it turns out, I think most people who, who leave New York will tell you this, you might think so before you leave, and then when you leave, you realize, like, there's, no, you know, there's just no place like it in the world. Uh, but I, th- I thought I was ready to let it go. Uh, and the second is it, it dawned on me that I was finally at a point in my career where I could make that trade from New York to Toronto and have it make sense. Because everyone tells you and at some level they're right, even though it's not literally true, that once you leave, you can't come back. You know, you can't leave New York Investment Banking you know, at at a mid-level and come to Toronto for four years or eight years and expect to walk back into New York with full credit for what you've done. Life, life just doesn't work that way. Um, but I did feel like I'd accomplished enough and had, you know, had enough experience behind me that I could translate that to something in, in Toronto that people would, would give me real credit for what I'd done, you know, as opposed to leaving New York after two or three years, at which point people say, look, I mean, you know, you're two, or three, two or three years out of school. Great that you spent some time on Wall Street, but you're not really bringing a richness of experience back with you. Um, but like I said, I w- I was open to it. I didn't, uh, I didn't go in saying I'm, I am moving back to Toronto. A great opportunity came to me. Uh, the market for Canadian dollar high yield bonds, which sounds awfully niche and, and very possibly it is, was just getting going in Toronto, and so each of the banks was looking for a guy or girl. From New York, who understood this stuff and had a reason to be in Toronto, uh, and with that many filters, uh, look, I'm not the only person, but I know the other four or five. Uh, and it, it struck me really as as a once in a lifetime opportunity because it wasn't just that Royal needed someone, and and you know, uh, kind of respect Royal's place in the market here too, right? Uh, it wasn't just that he needed someone, but they needed someone at this moment where the market was just getting going. So it was a chance to be kind of formative in this new market. Uh, And that was exciting because, look, there's a a lot you obviously give up when you leave Wall Street. The deals are not as big. The balance sheets are not as complex. Um, The pace, and I say this with no disrespect to Toronto, but the pace is not the same. Uh, But what I got back was I'd gone from being one of many lieutenants at one of many banks in New York, all chasing the two, Royals guy in Toronto. And I got to build a business and I got to build a market uh, and I got to be, you know, the frontline person taking my clients, my corporate clients, you know, through that journey in not just in the capital markets, but in this new
0: corner of the capital markets in Canada. And that was
1: really rewarding. That was a lot of fun.
0: And as you as you kind of touched upon the difference between the Toronto and New York financial markets, I think one of my colleagues, he, he had worked extensively in the London financial market and he came to Toronto and he was telling me, oh, yeah, this, this market is tiny. It's like the entire year's volume that happens here. It happens in like a couple of days in London. And I was like, wow, that's when I got the idea that, oh, yeah, London must be a huge market then. What what were kind of specific kind of like stories or moments that you experienced while you were in Toronto where it kind of hit you of, oh, wow, yeah, it's it's much smaller here. Like the pace is much slower here than New York.
1: I don't know if there's one story, Daniel, but there, there are a bunch of things. I mean, you know, it's just in some ways, it's what's considered a late night versus what's not, you know, and those, and those, those can seem trivial, but they really are different. But it wasn't that. It was it was the complexity uh, of what you were doing or, or how, how much harder it was to do simpler things here. So, you know, uh, a lot of a lot of leverage finance in New York is done on what they call event-driven transactions. So if there's a leverage buyout where a private equity firm is, is buying a company, Um, You know, the same way if you go to buy a house, the seller wants to know that you've got the financing secured. Um, Well, when a private equity firm goes to buy a company, the company wants to know that the private equity firm has the financing secured, that it's not going to be a problem. Uh, And and so what happens is before the private equity firm, you know, with the company goes to market to issue the bonds that will ultimately finance the purchase, you get what's called a commitment letter. And it's essentially the bank saying, you know, if we can't sell these bonds in the market, we're going to lend you the money ourselves right so you know don't worry about the financing market or no market the deal's going to close you can only do that in a really in a really liquid market a bank can only take that kind of risk if there's a depth to the market well canada the canadian high yield bond market doesn't have that depth in fact the canadian investment grade market the you know, traditional bond market doesn't even have that depth um that's not true it has that depth for intraday or a couple of days but nobody's going to write a three month or six month uh, commitment against something like that in Canada, so you can't finance the same kind of transactions because mm-hmm. they, they require certainty of funds, uh, and and you're not navigating a liquid market that gives you the same kind of readings and feedback. And a lot of the com- a lot of the complexity falls away. What you're doing are simpler deals.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And so it it seems that like slowly as you've been progressing in your career, you've been. Like I think the initial inflection that I'm seeing is like when you are joining Citadel, it's a new investment banking group where you're trying to create something. Let's run it without a balance sheet, and then now you come to Toronto and you're the guy, like you're the guy in Royal that is building out this high yield team. And so it seems like there are kind of potential kind of inklings of hmm, like this entrepreneurial spirit that is coming alive. And then you kind, of, it's for me like it looks like the big pivot where you go, okay, I'm going to join a startup called BorrowWell and they do lending, I'm gonna go join, join them. And you are telling me about how you know you took something like a like 80 percent pay cut to join a startup. And after you know like a decade on Wall Street and a bit on Pay Street, it seems like there's a lot left on the table for you to go join a startup. Like, what what was that like uh, period in your life? Like, why? What was going through your head as you were kind of making this decision?
1: I don't think i had the same motivations as anybody else on bay street or wall street at some level i enjoyed the intricacy and the substance uh i did it at some level just to prove to myself also that that i could i did it with a sense of adventure Um, i don't think i ever wanted to play by somebody else's playbook and so you know, you had these competing tensions because I did want to go play the biggest game on the biggest field and, and, and it looks like a very traditional thing to do, right? I mean, go, go from an Ivy League school to Wall Street. It's like the most obvious story in the world, but I wasn't doing it for its obviousness. I was doing it for the turbo charge. Um, and as much as I liked being part of the formation of the Canadian high yield bond market and, you know, being part of Royal's desk and, and, and really loved working with my clients, once all of that was up and running, you know, the, the kind of ongoing operation of that business, which is essentially go find deals, go sell deals, just started to feel a little bit repetitive. Um, and you've probably got the sense by now that repetitive doesn't really work for me.
0: Yeah, I was, I was just going to say, uh, I think in, in a more recent interview, like, I think it was like 2015, you talked about how the, you felt like the business itself was just not fun anymore. And was that was that like the big thing attached to this like repetitive nature that was coming along?
1: Yeah, I think that comment Daniel, actually had more to do um, with just changes to the broader cultures of uh, of the banks. I think you know a wake of booms and busts and a wake of scandals has, has mm-hmm. really tightened up some of the regulation, both internal and, ex- and external, uh, you know, uh, around those businesses. And I suppose in some societal way or moral way, you might say that's for the better, but. There was something fun about how swashbuckling it was. Once upon a time, um, take that, yeah, take that as you will. Uh, but no, in, in this case, I was I was just looking for something else to do. But I was also. I felt like my world was narrowing a little bit you know i had all of this legal skill and and even in new york and in, in those banking groups i was doing not just bond work but also bank work and and the com all the commitments behind it and and, and just a lot more structuring and in some cases restructuring during during the bust periods and i felt my world just getting a little bit narrower and i felt like i wasn't really there was nothing being asked of me that caught that called on the full set of my skills and that was kind of a a pretty clear signal to me that it was uh, it was time to go looking for the next thing. But I didn't know what the next thing was. And I, I looked at a bunch of different things. And Borwell kind of fell on my lap. Um, uh, a recruiter, actually, a recruiter who I really, really respect, uh, had me interviewing for a different role, uh, a, a private debt role at a hedge fund here here in Toronto that would have been quite interesting. And even as she was doing that, she knew the founder at Borrowill. Uh, and knew that they needed somebody for a particular role, and I'll tell you about that in a sec. And notwithstanding the fact that she didn't have an engagement there, and did for the for for the private debt role, she made the introduction, and I, uh, I really respected that. Uh, I respect. It. She's she's a friend of mine as as well, but I just uh, have an extraordinary respect for that decision that she made. Uh, so Borowell's an online lender, uh, you know, or or certainly. Uh, began its journey as an online lender. And I, I should say up front for those who don't know, there are kind of two kinds of online lending. There's the predatory kind and the non-predatory kind, and Borwell is the non-predatory kind, I will say very proudly. Um, but the nature of the, these online lenders, uh, and, and what I'm about to tell you could sound dodgy for, for those uninformed, but it's not, they don't actually have the money to lend you. Um, you know, these are not banks. These are actually young technology companies uh, for whom capital is quite precious. What they're doing uh, is actually when they originate the loan, they then sell it to another lender, typically, uh, and typically to a you know a bank or a credit union or maybe a financial investor, and and not somebody with a baseball bat, right? This is, this is not how that world works. Uh, but you've got you know from the perspective of this company that is selling financial assets, because you know what, what to you is a loan that you owe on the other side is an asset, that is money owed to somebody. Um, they have to buy find buyers for this asset and it's a new asset class in a sense in canada i mean you know you can buy i suppose unsecured consumer credit exposure i'm going to really bore your audience here uh you know in the form of say a credit card receivable but 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 just buying unsecured personal loans there's no market for that And, and on top of it you know they've been originated the ways you originate a loan matter people care whether whether you found your, your borrower at a bank or at a car dealership, although that wouldn't be unsecured, or online. And online is new. Uh, and so you've got this new kind of company finding borrowers in a new kind of way, putting them through a credit model that purports to be a little bit different. And credit investors, people who buy debt as assets, um, these are not adventurous people. These are risk-averse people. Uh, and these are people who like to see that whatever you're doing is very well tested you know, if you're doing three year, three year loans, at the very least, you should have a three year history. Probably they want you to have more like a 10 or 15 year history because of course there, there are cycles in consumer credit, cycles in the economy. You know, has your model been tested? Not only at least long enough for me to see one vintage of loans perform, but has it been tested long enough for me to see how it performs as the world changes? Uh, and the answer to both of those questions was flat out, no. Uh, So I I, I was given the somewhat difficult task of go find buyers for these loans for which we have no track record. Um, What a fun task. Uh, And at the same time, it did did a bunch of things for me, uh, aside from the 80% pay cut. Um, It put me in an environment around not just enterprising, but at some level, just younger, more energetic people. It put me in an environment that wasn't suit and tie. And that was by then a welcome change for me. But it also in some ways really reconnected me to the most fundamental suit and tie thing because my job was to go looking for money in all the most obvious and non-obvious places. And some of those obvious places are New York, Chicago, and California. And it was actually really fun for me to go re-engage in those markets and for me to call on my various network of people who had gone on you know, to do fascinating things at a variety of places, and just reconnect with all of it, and spend time in New York again, and spend time in California again. So, uh, while in some ways it was a departure from Bay Street, it, it, it was in other ways a kind of reengagement with American capitalism.
0: Yeah, that it's it's so it's so weird how it all kind of ties back. Did you ever think that, like, how it's just kind of all connecting again, like, is for some?
1: Well, it, it, it's occurred to me a few times. I you know. When we first chatted, I shared with you, you know, my kind of joke about turning up at Berkeley and, and being the only idiot with aptitude for, for computers who, who majors in English and now full circle, you know, here in Toronto running a tech company and, and you know, got out of Bay Street into tech only to be in fintech and really calling on all of that experience and credibility working with banks or, or working at banks uh, in order to be, to be able to transact the way we transact, uh, you know, and having a really strong eye uh, south the border for for you know our longer term ambitions with savvy and and knowing that it uh, again I've got my own comfort in those geographies, so yeah, it, it, you know life has a funny way of echoing and rhyming and repeating,
0: yeah, and i i I think from my mm. my learnings like it's definitely rare to find someone who's had such a extensive experience in like the prestigious realms of finance and law, make the jump into startups technology and like this kind of realm, this ecosystem. And so when you, like, since embarking into this world, what are some things that um, were obvious to you that were not obvious to, like, other senior-level people like in, like, BorrowWell or, like, the people that you worked at at Savvy? Like, technical stuff aside, like, technical finance linguist aside, were there things that, you know, they just assume, like, you just assume, like, this is how we should run a company. This is how we should, like, you know, think about market testing that other people from, like, Non law and like, banking backgrounds, i like never thought about. Um,
1: I think I came to the the idea of operating a company with a reasonable humility. I mean, I had never operated a company; I'd never been on a management team of a company. Uh, Borowell was the first first time that I was, and as much as I enjoyed it, and and pretty quickly found my footing to you know to voice opinions, I I think I had a pretty healthy respect for you know for the gaps in my own background. In fact, part of the fun of doing it was. Was filling those gaps. Um, I'd like to think that I brought a sense of professionalism from both, uh, you know, a kind of financial and legal perspective. I mean, I'm you know, I'm not a qualified lawyer here, but you don't you don't just shed those instincts overnight. Uh, and so, I, I think for a lot of Canadian fintech companies, and particularly the online lenders. Um, who rely on financing on on the other side for you know for their business? There's this assumption that you know there's Lending Club or SoFi or or, or all these other platforms in the U. S. And they were able to build businesses by by turning around and getting other people to buy their loans. So obviously this works and obviously we'll be able to do it. Uh, and there is nothing obvious in any of those statements. Uh, and and uh, you know if you don't come from that kind of world and God bless, I mean you know these tech companies have a different culture and they need that different culture. And if you just fill them 80% full with people from Bay Street or, or Wall Street or, 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 or any singular walk of life, um, you know, you'd know you probably get a different culture than, than what they want. Uh, there's no one there. Who, if there's no one there with that kind of background, then no one understands what an institutional investor needs hmm. uh, or, or what a bank or credit union who's going to buy the exposure needs or even how to talk to them or how to relate to them. Uh, or, or, or how to bring, you know, this kind of institutional relationship management skill, uh, which is a skill, and which is a, you know, a, a learned skill. Um, so I'd like to think, I you know, I, I don't know. If, I think your question was, did I, did I show them anything they didn't know? Yeah, I showed them how to deal with the part of the world that I came from, mm-hmm. um, which sounds
0: like a very long way to say something obvious. <laughs> and you, so you, you, you you talked about how like you, you know, you came in to borrow this kind of humility of like learning uh, how to like actually operate a company, and so you you did that for a few years, and then you branched off into co- you know co founding savvy. What what made or what kind of, you know, I guess like the easy way to put it is like why, why start savvy like why,
1: sure. Um... And, you know it, it, it's interesting because it, it was a real leap of faith i mean being being on a management team is a, is still a whole lot different than starting a company from scratch or or, or, or running one um, but the origin story doesn't start necessarily with wanting or needing to run a company or certainly not right away i mean uh, uh, you know you can only be in this entrepreneurial tech world so long without at least thinking to yourself hey i should do this sometime." Uh, But that wasn't the urgency. It it, it was it was actually much more about the substance. So uh, if you'll bear with me for a long origin story, Borrowell starts as an as an online lender, kind of in the spirit of Lending Club. And one of the hardest things in that business. There are a lot of hard things in that business. But if you hire a really good credit person like we had, Scott Layton, you know, you get those parts right. Um, but one of the really hard things, no matter how good your people are, is just finding your borrowers in a cost-effective way. It's just very difficult slash expensive, and those two words actually more or less mean the same thing, uh, to find borrowers for your loans. It's really hard to reach people online. It's saturated. It's noisy. You have to establish a brand at the same time. It's hard and we were at uh, a conference called lend it it's got to be the spring of 2016. no it's got to be the spring of 2015 um listening to a presentation by credit karma and credit karma is a company in the u.s that will give you your credit score for free um and the reason they do that their business and you, you think to yourself like what's the business model you're giving me my credit score for free, and what? Well, it's and, and now I know something about you, and I can market a whole bunch of other financial products to you. And again, depending on your view of this world, this can sound really pro-consumer or a little bit sketchy. I'm kind of agnostic on the topic. But we're listening to this presentation, and the reason they're presenting at this lending conference is among the among the people who they send leads to or is lending Club. And and these other online lenders, it's one of the very effective channels for borrower acquisition for 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 the online lending companies in the U.S. Uh, and and our team at Borrowwell in particular, Eva Wong, um, sitting there going like, "How come we don't have that?" And just as the thought is like, "How come we don't have that in Canada?" And the thought trails off. You're like, yeah, "It was credit to Eva. We should build that." Uh, and, and so Borwell quickly did. Borowell launched Canada's first kind of broadly marketed free credit score program. Uh, and we struck a deal with Equifax, uh, which was actually, it was, it was fun for me. It was, it was the first deal I really got to negotiate at Borowell uh, to give Canadians their credit scores for free. And it made quite a splash and it got a lot of great press. And of course, the press was great for us. But what it became was a way to generate leads. And initially, we thought of it as a way to generate leads for the loan business. And then we realized that much as Credit Karma uh, is a perfectly viable business of its own, the credit score product of Borrowell could be a perfectly viable business of its own uh, with with, with the exact same model. When someone came in, we'd give them their credit score, and we'd we'd show them a whole bunch of other financial products that they could qualify for if they chose. So now Borrowell's in two lines of business. It's kind of the lending club of Canada, and it's kind of the Credit Karma of Canada. Uh, and at the same time, in parallel, uh, we did a really cool deal with CIBC. Uh, CIBC, uh, you know, came to us and the idea was that they were going to use Borwell's technology to offer these same kind of unsecured term loans uh, to their customers. Um, really tightly integrated deal, you know, uh if if somebody was presented with this this opportunity on CIBC's online banking and they clicked on it, they were securely handed over to Borwell. They were adjudicated on Borwell's system, and then handed back to CIBC for funding, um, which required a whole bunch of trust uh, and a whole bunch of paperwork. Uh, and 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 yours truly, the uh, I can't believe he's not calling it lawyering. Um, got got to lead the negotiation with. To be clear, competent counsel, from, you know, from 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 our outside law firm helping, uh, and it was really the most fascinating deal of my life. Uh, and my now partner, then CTO of Borowell, Sal Naran, was really leading the charge on all the technology and the integration and what is actually you know the real part of the deal, which is doing the thing. Uh, and I got to lead the negotiation and all, all the paperwork and the regulatory aspects and the like. Um, and that was really fun for both of us. So, you know, Sal really comes from a background of, of building bank-grade lending technology, so he understands that world really well. And I, of course, come from the bank the the bank world myself. And we just thought that was great. We had a ton of fun doing it. Uh, and while we were at Warwell, other institutions, you know, were knocking on our door a bit asking if they could, you know, find ways to make use of the technology too. And and Sal and I, were, you know, we were really intrigued by that. Um, roll forward to early 2017 and Borwell really had to choose a direction. Um, and credit to them, you know, people always talk about product market fit, which you know, is a, is a crucial thing in, in in building a business with a viable model. But founder um, founder product fit is important too. I mean, the founders have to love and be passionate about what they're doing. Um, and, you know, the other two founders of Borwell were really passionate about, being consumer champions, about building a direct consumer business, about making, whether it was lending fast, fair, and friendly, or, or later in the credit score context, the credit is all yours. You know, empowering the Canadian consumer, um, which is great, which is a just a fantastic mission to have, and it's what motivated them. But Sal and I started to really feel like, you know, there's this opportunity here to bring this kind of technology to bear By by using it to power banks to get you know to take them off of their decades old systems to take them off of those patchworks, Um, and we both realized that we enjoyed we really enjoyed that kind of work. I mean, some people would find this act of partnering you know with with a large institution somewhat torturous, but we're built in a way that we really enjoy it. It spoke to us, and for us, that was the
0: the product founder fit. Wow. And so, in in that process, like you you knew that there was this demand, like other people, like you've done it once, and other banks were saying, "This is interesting. We want to be a part of it." But the actual leap to you know go outside, even though you guys both liked it, to be like, "Let's let's actually just start it." What was it a simple decision where it was no, obvious for you?
1: It was not only, not only was it not a simple decision? Yeah. Daniel, it's not nearly that simple. The story I've just I've I've given you the. You know the, the, the kind of cartoon <laughs> version of it, and uh, and and probably even the timeline that I just shared with you does does not really hold. That's you know that's that's never how these things how these things happen. What it, what I would say is, uh, I think Boro was picking a direction, mm. and really separately for Sal and I, for reasons that are similar but not identical, the direction didn't resonate and. Um, you know, some of the things that we wanted or didn't want out of the long-term opportunity with Borewell started to have a little bit of a dissonance with, with the direction the company was going. And, th- and those are long processes. You know, you don't you don't leave a young company like that overnight. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the, the, there's a lot of discovery between just realizing where the company's going and realizing where you're going and then coming to terms with that and having conversations with your partners about it. Um, and then really being clear with your body language so that you're not surprising every anyone and then giving a lot of notice and handing things over really responsibly. So, you know, I, I've given you kind of like a rear view, rear view mirror n- narrative, but that's not, that's not actually how it played out at all. Um, what I would say was I, I, I got to a point where it, it was just clear that um, the things I wanted to do and the things I thought I were good at were no longer going to be central to Borough Wells' mission. Um, and I I'd, I'd really made a decision that I had to leave regardless um, and then Sal for his own reasons I, I, I think came to similar conclusions not at the same time but around uh, and as we found ourselves both leaving having seen the same things and having been inspired by of same the same things although we come from completely different backgrounds and having you know really come to work closely together and really respect each other um, at a certain point it just
0: became too obvious not to Mm -hmm. and as as we kind of hit upon like the closing legs of this interview something I wanted to ask is it it seems from your story that you've you know you've kind of had at least like maybe even like one or two steps ahead of kind of your cohorts or your friends in terms of seeing the inevitability of like you know Meryl kind of everyone going to be let go like it's going to come to an end or like when you're at like citadel that yeah this model's not going to work or you know when you're at rbc like just knowing that yeah this repetitive nature this you know all these regulations is i'm gonna have to move on and you're constantly just aware of this moving on part but if if you were to make like a long longer term projection like if you were to imagine like your your 20 22 year old self in like berkeley um if that norm were to look at you right now, being an entrepreneur of this lending company, what do you think that the emotional reaction from that norm would be? Just total bewilderment.
1: <laughs> um, but I don't. I don't think the twenty-one or twenty-two-year-old norm, you know, would have any capacity even to even size that up. Um, uh, like I said, I wasn't a terribly practical person. <laughs> uh, you know. I think if I'm going to flatter myself, a couple of things that hold where I always like striking in my own path. And, and you know, like I said earlier, I think I had always a little bit of that tension between wanting to succeed against some fairly challenging backdrops and at the same time not wanting to play somebody else's game. Uh, and, and, and I think some of the story kind of, you know, some of the broader plot holds with that. Uh, I think the better way I, I understand the story myself is... You know, there, there are a lot of ways you can design a career for yourself. One is to simply know where you want to get from a young age and do everything you can to get there in, in a fairly linear fashion, and I think that can be highly effective. I mean, people who know what they want, the trick is knowing what you want, right? But people who know what they want and just go after it uh, tend to be fantastically effective. Um, you know, uh, I suppose at the far end of the spectrum, there's just aimless. My, my my approach was always different. I don't think I knew where I wanted to get, but at each step, I think I knew what I wanted from the next thing. Uh, I knew that I always knew I was looking for a challenge, and I always tried to put myself in a position where, not just was the thing going to be interesting, but I always tried to find something where I thought that whatever happened on the other side of it, interesting things would happen. Um, you know, and, and knock on wood, so far that's more or
0: less helpful is there anything else today that we didn't cover that you kind of wish that you had shared or covered?
1: You know, I, I always caution people. I mean you know the uh, as as <laughs> as you progress through life, people come to you for advice and I, I, I do always try to tell anybody, look, I, I would never cancel anyone to take the journey I took because it wasn't a particularly planned journey. You just kind of got here. Um, I do encourage people to explore. Uh, I, I like that. Um, and, and to persevere, you know, as much as I've had some, some changes uh, you know, in the course of what I've done in my career, I've, uh, I've mentored some young, younger people who I've seen kind of come in and out of institutions in 18 months or two years, and, and I do try to tell them, look, it's great to be fascinated by the next thing, it's great to go in search of adventure, it's great not to want to play somebody else's game, I have to believe these things. Uh, at the same time, uh, I always try to encourage them to stay somewhere long enough to to live through a cycle of their own mistakes, to see the consequences of their own work. I think if you if you leave somewhere too quickly, you can't you, you can't really internalize the learnings. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, the maybe if we're going to play into some fairly obvious cultural narratives, there's, there's like this generation of impatience, and I think patience uh, is becoming more and more of a virtue. Uh, I say sitting in my glass house. Um. Yeah, and I, I get a lot of questions from people who are trying to get uh, off of Bay Street or, or or out of law and into the tech world. Um, and it can be frustrating for them because you know they're typically very ambitious. They've typically done very well at everything they've done. They're, they're usually quite skilled. Uh, and what they find is they go knocking on the doors of these young startups and there's no seat. There's no role because, it, in fact, these young startups, first of all, don't particularly understand them and don't know how to assess that set of skills. And usually as much as they think to themselves, you know, in in that old kind of Bridgewater phrasing, I'm a great, I'm a good athlete. I'm self-motivated. I can run a process. I'm organized. You don't have to tell me anything twice. I'm totally hireable. That's their perspective. And they're not wrong. Um, But these small startups don't look at the world that way and they're undercapitalized and they don't have room for anyone who doesn't fit a specific need. And so they just, there's no seat. Uh, and, and so what I've guided a few people is, don't try to go from that world, I mean, first of all, don't feel that you have to leave that world, if that world works for you, stay in that world. Um, but if, if you've really decided that you want to get out, um, as much as I went to what was that about a 12 person startup, don't go looking for the 12 person startup, go looking for for somewhere in the middle that's going to find a little more use for your skills for somewhere that's gonna let you make a bit of transition, let you see what it's like to be at an operating company, period. Like get out of professional services, go into maybe a more stable, more mature operating company before you go to the one that's that's just being birthed.
0: That That's great advice. And one I will say, I will add to, from my own experience talking to more than 100 startups now. And yeah, it's, it's gonna be a challenge for people coming out of Bay Street or like law or any kind of finance industry, for sure. And so, Norm, thanks so much for coming to the podcast and sharing your story with me and my audience. It's honestly, you, you might have felt like you might have bored some people with like the whole credit stuff, but I, know, I personally find it very fascinating. Like, I'm coming from the equity world that it, learning about the credit world is also something that I wanted to do. So thanks a lot for the education. I appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you. I really, really appreciate the opportunity. This is a lot of fun. So, thanks. All
0: right. Great. Thank you. Bye. so thanks for listening to the podcast if you enjoyed what you heard please check out other episodes and don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date for the future episodes also I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes, Google Play or Stitcher whichever is applicable to you to see past episodes you can go to oldmandan.com podcasts also you can sign up to my weekly newsletter on my blog oldmandan.com newsletter You can stay up to date with future podcast episodes that way, and included in the newsletter are my book reviews I write, my weekly article in the related to the domain of self-development systems, as well as seven things I learned throughout the week on being healthy, wealthy, and wise. Finally, special thanks to icons8.com for allowing me to use their music, Tiny People, on the podcast. Great. I will see you all next time. Take care.